Amen, amen. If you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and grab it. Make your way to Hebrews chapter 2. Now, we've been going through this vision series over the last few weeks where we've been talking about worship and God's desire for us to worship Him, that we as a church exist to worship God. And so what does that mean? We can talk about that in a very high level, but we wanted to get very practical this year. And so we started by looking at Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6 a few weeks ago, uh, to love the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and we shall love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and allow that to kind of frame our, our kind of thoughts on what it means to worship God. So last week, we kicked it off by looking at the God in whom we worship as we worship God the Father, and today we're going to look at the Son, and then we'll look at the Spirit next week. One God and three persons as we look at the Trinity. We want to know the God that we worship. And it is easy to define the Trinity, one God and three persons. It is far more complex to uh, describe that and to explain that and to understand that. But uh, if you're going to talk about the eternal God of all creation, you would, you would expect it to be complex, right? <laughs> you would expect it would be a little bit more difficult to, to understand that. But I hope that uh, through last week and this week and the following week that we'll have a deeper understanding of who our God is, the one that we worship. And as we understand more of who He is, it uh, lights a fire in our hearts to worship Him in greater ways. So before we dive into Hebrews 2, let me just tell you what today is going to look like and the time we have right here in the next 30, 40 minutes, something like that, is we're going to have three parts of this message, okay? First part, we're going back to seminary class like we did last week. We talk about some Trinity on some like uh, deeper levels. So if I lose you there, just hold on tight. We'll go from there to talk about the Son in Hebrews chapter 2 and who Jesus is. And then we'll have the joy uh, at the end of our time today to take the Lord, Lord's Supper to remember God's great grace to us by sending His Son, Jesus, to die for us. So kind of three parts that we'll get through. First, let's, uh, let's get ready for the kind of seminary style for a little bit to talk about the Trinity. Last week, I looked at the Trinity, and we talked about it from like a, a very telescopic view, very broad. I looked at the very beginning of Scripture in Genesis 1, as it talks about how God created, and we see the Trinity there. Then we looked at the beginning of the New Testament in Matthew. We see the start of Jesus' ministry as he was baptized. We see the Trinity there as well. We kind of talked through some of those things, even the different illustrations that fall short of describing who our God is. And so kind of that big, broad brushstroke is what we got last week, and this week what I want to do is actually, instead of going telescopic, I want to go microscopic, and we're actually not just look at some verses, but like specific words and linguistics and how language is to like understand why we believe that there is one God and three persons, okay? So this whole series founded on Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 6 says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, it's interesting, in Hebrew, there are two words that can be translated as one. The first one is yadid, which means singularity, like one and only son. There's only one of them. It's singular. There's another word in Hebrew, had, which means composite unity, composite unity. It would be used to talk about uh, maybe like a single cluster of grapes or two sticks that were uh, bound together, or in a biblical sense, when a man and woman would get married, two becoming one composite unity. Now, why that matters is because in Deuteronomy 6, when it says, love the Lord your God, 
and then it says the Lord our God is one. The one that is used there, Jadid, which is, or Yahad, which is composite unity. Composite unity. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. So the word itself is highlighting this whole idea of one God in three persons. Singularity, but unity with them. You find it also in Genesis chapter 1 again, verse 26, God says, let us, plural, us, let's let make, make man in our image, plural, and you read a little bit further, it says, so God created man in his, singular, own image. So which is it? Is it an us and an our, or is it as his or him? And the answer biblically is Yes. Yes, God does it again in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. The prophet writes, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I, singular, send? And who will go for us, plural? So is he an I or is he an us? The answer is yes. <laughs> right? Bad grammar, but good theology. Okay, still not convinced. All right, well, let's go a little bit further. Okay. When we find the Trinity in the Old Testament, you always see, uh, or find God, rather, in the Old Testament, you always see it in the plural form. The word for God in the Old Testament is Elohim. Now, if you want to make a plural word in Hebrew, what you do is put im at the end of it. So if you have one angel, a seraph, uh, and you want plural angels, seraphim. If you have uh, one cherub, and you want plural, cherahim. One God, El, but God is seen as Elohim. It's a plural form. Now, let's take it language-wise to kind of something a little more current to us today. Um, English doesn't do this so much, but many other languages do, including Hebrew, but also Spanish. So in Spanish, you have an article and you have a kind of pronoun that goes with it. The article always helps you to know whether it's singular or plural. Okay, So if we had a table in front of us, It'd be la mesa in Spanish, right? The table, la mesa. But if we had a bunch of tables, it'd be las mesas. That would be plural for tables. It changes the article that's attached to whatever that object would be. Does that make sense? Now, we would never say in Spanish, las mesa. Why? That, that's incorrect. That doesn't work grammatically. Now, in the Hebrew language, what you find as you turn the pages of the Old Testament, what you find is the, the singular article, la, followed by the plural form of God, the Elohim, singular yet plural. And so if you knew the original language and you were reading it, you would be reading the Old Testament and being like, why is it this way? The grammar is wrong. I'm like, yeah, that's the point. Where the grammar might be wrong, the theology might be right. So what we find is God is one in three persons. And today we're going to unpack uh, as much as we can. We won't completely unpack uh, the second person of the Trinity in Jesus Christ. And to be honest, we'll never unpack it all. We wouldn't unpack it all in one week, but we have every single Sunday, right? We gather around and we do this every week. So if we don't get through it today, we'll hopefully get some of it done in time. But the reality is, for all of eternity, our minds are not going to exhaust who God is. That would be like us taking a Dixie cup, 
to the Atlantic Ocean and saying, I want all of that in this cup. It's just not going to happen, okay? But we're going to do our best to, to unpack a little bit clearer picture of who the second person of the Trinity is. Now, as we talk about Jesus this morning, this is extremely important for all of us. What comes to your mind when you think about the Son? When you think about the Son of God or Jesus, what comes to your mind? It's very important. For some of us, maybe your mind rushes to John 3.16, and you think about the great love of the Father, that he would send the Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. That's, that's a great place to think about when you think about Jesus. Uh, for others of us, we maybe grew up Catholic, and so when you think about Jesus, what comes to your mind is a crucifix, because anything you kind of did religious growing up, you always saw Jesus on the cross. Maybe that's like what comes to your mind when you think about Jesus. Or maybe there's a TV show or a movie that you've seen at some point where an actor portrays Jesus, and so you picture that person as you think about Jesus. And still, for some of us, uh, can't get past Christmas, and so whenever you think about Jesus, you think about little baby, eight pounds, six ounce Jesus. That's kind of like where your mind rests. Now, we have to understand rightly who Jesus is because it will impact all of our life. It will shape all of our life. Jesus, in Matthew 16, he meets with his disciples. And when he's meeting with them, he says, who do people say that I am? And the disciples go through a long list. Well, some say you're a prophet. Some say you're like Jeremiah, this man of sorrows. And some say that you're a good man. Others say that you're a great teacher. And they kind of go through all this list. And then Jesus is like, okay, okay, okay. But who do you say that I am? And that, that will impact not just your life now, but your eternity. What you believe about Jesus will impact your eternal destiny. It will affect how you live your life even today. And let's just be practical with this for a second. We talk about this series on worship. Understanding rightly who Jesus is shapes the songs in which we sing. It shapes what we play here on stage Sunday morning because here's the reality. Whatever you think about Jesus, you don't get to define Jesus. You don't get to create your own personal Jesus and I create my own little personal Jesus. Like, no, Jesus has defined himself in the word of God. So as we open the scriptures, we see and we know we have a revealed picture of who Jesus is. We don't get to decide. He has decided. He's just communicating it to us. And so when we pick songs that we play, it's based around what scripture tells us about Jesus. Now, this matters because imagine if, and I have done this before, I've written a love song for my wife, and uh, I would play it for you this morning, but it would be embarrassing for me and uh, probably for my wife. Uh, but if I played a song, if I wrote a song, a love song for my wife, and uh, I started to play it and sing, but babe, I've written this amazing song for you, just like sit here and like listen as I play the guitar. And I wrote a song, and I started to sing it, and I, I said, these beautiful words about this red-headed girl from Kentucky, and just started singing. Like, it might be beautiful chords. It might move the heart with, like, the different inflections. But my wife would be sitting there and be like, what are you talking about? Like, this is clearly a song about a woman, but it's not me. 
Like, my wife does not have red hair. I don't know if she's been to Kentucky before. Like, I have no idea, right? So if I wrote a song like that, my wife would be like, no, 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 I don't like that song. That's about somebody else. And we don't want to sing songs where Jesus is up in heaven being like, what are you talking about? Who are you singing to? Like, no, we need to rightly understand him so that we, both with our voices, we sing, we worship him rightly. But as we understand who Jesus is, it will shape how we live. We'll be people of integrity because we look at the life of Christ. We'll be people of mercy and forgiveness because we look at the life of Christ. So we're going to say, I'm a Christian. We need to look like Christ. And so I can't, I can't express enough the importance of understanding who Jesus is rightly so that we find salvation for all of eternity. So that we, we live a life that is of right worship to him. So that our everyday life, the decisions we make and the way that we live, if we're going to say we're Christians, reflect the true Jesus. And that is where Hebrews chapter 2 is going to help us. Now, this passage is rich. It is rich on who Jesus is. And it actually doesn't start in Hebrews 2. The whole book is about Jesus. And Hebrews really shows the the greatness of God through Jesus Christ. We see it in chapter 1. But in verse, or in chapter 2, and this is where we're going to spend our time just unpacking who Jesus is. So you follow along with me as I read, pick up in verse 5, and we'll actually finish off the chapter this morning. So this is what Hebrews chapter 2 says to us about the second person of the Trinity. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, which we were speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels, and you crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At the present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Verse 10, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise your name. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook in the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has power of death. That is the devil, and to deliver all those through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every aspect, so that he might become the merciful and and faithful high priest in service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray this morning. 
Lord, instruct us by your scriptures today. By your grace, would you enlighten our minds? Would you, would you cleanse our hearts so that reading and hearing and meditating on your word, we would rightly worship you with all of our hearts and with all of our soul and with all of our might. Now let me invite all of you to pray silently before the Lord, asking him to do something like that in your heart and in your mind, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, whether you're close to the Lord or far away or don't believe in him, would you in faith just just pray and ask that God would enlighten your mind and your heart to understand his truth today. Pray and ask him to do that right now. Lord Jesus, though you are great and mighty and strong, thank you for your your mercy and your grace that we can come before you and pray. And thank you for hearing our prayers. Pray in your goodness and in your grace you would answer. It's in your name we ask. Amen. All right, four pictures of Christ that we find in this passage that I just read. Four different images, and this is not going to exhaust Christ by any means. I, I get that. And it, it makes me a little fearful even trying to, to boil Jesus down into to four different pictures. But Hebrews does that, and so for this specific text, that's what we're going to try to do. It won't be sufficient, but I hope it does dig our hearts deeper to love the Lord. So the first picture we see, the first image, is that Jesus is king. Jesus is king. He's the king who got involved for us. It starts in uh, talking about his him having all authority over all things. And I love how the end of verse 8 talks about it. Because at the beginning of verse 8 it says, putting everything in subjection under his feet. That everything is subject to him. That's the kingship of Christ. He's the king. He oversees everything. Everything is subjected to him. And it says, just to, to make sure we don't miss it, there's left nothing outside of his control. He is the king. Now, I love the realness of Scripture because the feeling within us sometimes is that God's not in control. And that's why it says right after that, it says, at the present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him. So the reality is sometimes we feel like things are out of control, that this world is is really broken, that we're having struggles or doubts, and we're like, "Is, is Jesus really in control? And Hebrews is like, yeah, yeah, we feel that. We feel that within our spirit and our soul. But we have hope that we see him. Now, I think what he's trying to do there is he's pointing back to the fact that Jesus came to earth. He got involved. And as he came here, we can look at the life of Jesus. And we can see that everything is subjected to him. We can look at the life of Jesus and see that Jesus has authority over, over uh, the, the world itself, right? He calms storms with a word. That Jesus has power over sickness and disease where Jesus is healing people. Jesus even has power over death itself when he raises people from the dead. We see that Jesus has power over the spiritual world, that Jesus has power over, over demons, that, they, that he speaks and they're subjected to him and they submit to him. And so we might not feel like this is true, that Jesus is king, but when we look at the life of Jesus, 
when we look at the ministry of Jesus, we see that he is in control over all things. But for now, verse 9, he was made a little lower than the angels. And he has been crowned with glory and honor. Again, this is kingship language. Not only is all things subject to him, but Jesus is crowned with glory. And the glory that he has is an amazing glory. In verse 10, it highlights the kingship of Christ, the glory of Christ. And it says in verse 10, for whom and by whom all things exist. Do not rush past verse 10. It has deep application for your life and for my life. This king we were created for. This king is the one who allows us to exist. For whom and by whom all things exist. We exist for him. For him. We were made for him. We were created as human beings for him. That's why there's a God-shaped hole in our soul that we will try to fill with all sorts of things. Cash and prizes and new relationships and new jobs. And we we try to take that and say, this is going to satisfy this God-shaped hole in my heart. And it never does. It always leaves us short and lacking. It's because we ultimately weren't made for all those things to satisfy us. We were made for him. You see that? We were created for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. One theologian says that our soul will not find rest or will remain restless until we find our rest in him. And West Square's Church, I, I have been praying that for us. I pray that we would be restless when we try to find anything in this world to give us rest. And the reason why I pray that is because I want you to have rest as you come to God. And I believe as you find that rest in God, it will stoke in your heart a a desire to worship Him and to praise Him, knowing that I was created for Him. And not only are we created for Him, it's by Him that we exist. He holds us together. All of creation Jesus is holding together. Jesus right now is keeping the earth perfectly on its axis. It's traveling through space at 67,000 miles per hour as we rotate as an earth at 1,000 miles per hour. And somewhere between 93 million and 94 million miles away from the sun, because if we were a little bit closer, we'd burn up. A little bit farther away, we'd freeze to death. And Jesus is holding all of that together. And then in here this morning, as you came and you sat down, Jesus is holding your, your lungs together as you take a breath and you breathe. As your heart beats and as the blood flows through your body, Jesus is the one that's holding all of that together. So not only is your soul made for him, your body is even holding together. Our world is holding together solely because of his power and his might. He is the king crowned with glory and honor. Now you take this picture of a king crowned with glory and honor and all these things, and you would think he'd be a distant king. He'd be far away. 
But no, he gets involved with us. It says in verse 9, who for a little while was made a lower than the angels. He was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. The creator of the universe stepped into our time and our neighborhood and he gave his life for us. This is a king that got involved because we desperately needed someone to get involved. We desperately needed someone to rescue us and to redeem us and to save us. So though he is high and he is mighty and he is powerful, he's all those things, he is a God who stoops low for us, who loves us. Now, this isn't in Scripture, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I, could, <laughs> I just kind of picture this happening in heaven. As, as Jesus, the king over everything, tells his angels, all right, it's getting close to Christmas time, so I'm, uh, I'm heading down to earth, right? Like I'm, I'm all the way down to, to earth now. And I just picture angels being like, whoa, 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 you're doing what? Like, like Jesus, that, that place is a cesspool of sin and death. Like, you, you, you don't want to go there, right? Like, just send one of us. Like, we'll go on your behalf. And Jesus is like, no, 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 I'm going. And not only am I going down there, I'm going to take on flesh and be one of them. And I, I imagine angels being like, are you crazy? What? You're, you're going to do what? You're going to go down there? Like, Jesus, if you're going to go down there, please just don't like get, get, let any of that get on you, right? Like, in my mind, in a very humorous way, the way I picture of it is like, kind of like when we, we go on a trip, we went to Tennessee for, for Christmas, visit family out there, and you have to do your rest stop along the way, different parts, and you go into like a uh, truck stop, and what do you do if you have young kids when you go into a truck stop? Even if you don't have young kids and you're an adult, you're like, don't touch anything. Like, if I can get it with my shoe or my foot, like, let's flush the toilet, let's open the door, like, let's hand sanitize, and that's not enough. Like, let's just make sure we didn't get anything on us, so let's hand sanitize again on the way out, right? That's how we, we think. Now, imagine a God who describes himself as holy, 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 and righteous. And these angels see him in all of his glory saying, I'm going to take on flesh and I'm going to get involved. What? Jesus, don't, don't get any on you. Oh, I'm going to get everything on me. I'm going to bear their sin in their place and die the death that they deserve. This, is, this should stir our hearts to worship him. There is, there is nothing more beautiful than this. There's nothing Seeing the beauty of Christ, the, the truest and ultimately the most beautiful one, give up his beauty so that we could be loving to God? The truest and ultimate strength, the one who holds all things together, becomes weak and vulnerable so that we could be saved and come to God. Oh, this should stir our hearts to worship and praise. This should stir our hearts to live for him in every aspect of our life. But Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, isn't just king. That's not the only picture that we get of him. He's also a champion. He's a champion. Now, you don't see the word, at least in my translation, champion. But if you get to verse 10, it says, middle of verse 10, and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. 
Some translations have this, this word founder as champion, and that's a better translation. It's not speaking when it says founder here of, of being the author or the, the first part of it, although Hebrews will get to that in chapters 11 and 12 where Jesus is the author of our faith. That, that, is, that is true. But what he's trying to get us to see right here is that he is champion. That's what that word literally means. Now, what is a champion? A champion is somebody who would engage as a representative in combat. And what does that mean? In the olden days, the, there would be fights that were settled by a representative fighting on behalf of an army, on behalf of a nation. If you know your Bible at all, the picture that you see of this in the Old Testament is David and Goliath. Where these armies know there's going to be a lot of shed blood if we come together and we fight and war this out. So we'll just send like one person to represent us. And if you'll send one person to represent you, then, then we'll come in and they'll fight. And then we'll decide who wins based upon these two people fighting. So you got King David and Goliath who fight. And what you're seeing here is that Christ is this representative who goes and fights the battle for us. I mean, remember, David goes and fights the battle and, and, and defeats Goliath, and the people didn't do anything. They're on the sideline. They're on the top of the hill just watching, hoping that this representative can win this battle for us. This champion can actually win the battle. And Jesus is that champion who goes and fights the battle that we could not win. We couldn't win. We couldn't beat death. Many people have tried, and all have failed, except for Jesus. Except for Jesus. He defeated that it tells us in verse 14 that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death. That is the devil. He delivers us from this lifelong slavery, the end of verse 15 tells us, to death and this fear of death. Jesus goes face to face with our sin and his perfection, he beats it. In his righteousness, he takes our place. And in his power and his might and his strength, he goes to face death after he defeats our sin and he defeats death, the penalty for our sins. He's our champion who fights in our place when we could not win. Now, this doesn't mean that this was easy. There was a lot of sacrifice. There's a lot of sacrifice for Christ, the things that he took on, the burdens that he bared. He was overcome by sorrow the night before he went to the cross. So much so that he's sweating great drops of blood as he prays for those that would even betray him. And then he uses the greatest weapon of our enemy, death, to defeat him. And this is what's great. Jesus didn't just do all these great things to be our champion to save our soul. Scripture tells us that Jesus came to make all things new. So it's not just like he saves us and he's like, well, let's move on. No, this broken world, this kind of world that's a, that's a cesspool of sin and death, he's going to make it new. He's going to redeem it. Our broken bodies that we feel like just continue to break down, continue to be hurt, we continue to have aches and pains, Jesus is going to make all those things new. He's doing that by defeating death. And everybody who is 40 years old and older says amen to that, right? There's a, there's a hope, not just for our souls, but also for our bodies. In this broken world, he is the champion who has overcome. Now, he's not just a king and he's not just the champion. The second person of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity is also described as brother in this passage. He's a brother who's not ashamed of us. That's what we see in verse 11. 
He's not ashamed to call them brothers. This is beautiful. Jesus is not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed of me. I mean, our sin is worth, it deserves shame. It does. Because we are not holy and righteous and perfect like he is. Yet Jesus in his perfection and his righteousness is not ashamed of you. No, he came in order to save you, to forgive you of those sins, and to wipe away and to bear that shame on the cross. If we believe in him, we trust in him, he is not ashamed of us. I mean, some of you, you know what the feeling is like when somebody's ashamed of you. You know it. Those of you that have had teenagers have probably already felt this many times when your kids are, right, ashamed of you. I mean, have you ever had a a friend that you thought was a real close friend and somebody else comes in and then you feel that they're ashamed of you? That is a, that is a terrible, terrible picture. It's a terrible feeling. But, but this passage is telling us, no, he's, he's not ashamed of us and he calls us family, brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would see him as, as family. One, one of the things that happened in Rome at this time is people would would brag about their genealogies. Like, it was a big deal if you could, like, trace your genealogy back and, like, highlight all the famous people that were in your, your family line. Like, that was a big deal. And what was interesting is many people in Rome would, like, go and, and edit it. Certain people they were ashamed of. Uh, my great-great-grandfather, like, dude, that guy was a weird guy. Let's take him out, right? Oh, that person, no, let, let's take him out. And they would kind of edit it to make them look better. Because they were ashamed of those people. But then when Jesus comes on the scene, in Matthew chapter 1, you see his lineage given. And the people that are, that are mentioned in there, he's not editing people because he's ashamed of them. No, Jesus looks at them and, and, and welcomes them in. I mean, first he, he mentions five different women in his genealogy in Matthew 1. People didn't do that at that time. Women were seen as lesser. And Jesus is like, no, no, I'm lifting them up. Notice them, see them, they're important. And not just that, notice them and see them, but I mean, some of these ladies that are mentioned in here are not like the people you'd be most proud of, right? You've got Tamar, who's an incest survivor. You've got Bathsheba, who's an adulteress. You have Rahab, that's a prostitute. And you even have Jesus' mother, Mary, who's a, an unwed single mother. And Jesus is like, yeah, all of them, all of their their. their their moral standards that they continue to fall in, like, I, I welcome them in. I welcome them in. I bring forgiveness to them. I bring hope. I bring a, a passion. I bring peace to them. And Jesus isn't ashamed of us. No, he welcomes us in, and even some of the, the, the worst of sins that we have, in order to cleanse us from those things, in order to give us a hope through those things. This union into the family of Christ is amazing. One of my favorite passages of resurrection is in John chapter 20, where Jesus is talking to, to Mary in the garden after he's risen from the grave, and he tells Mary, hey, go get my brothers. Speaking of the disciples, go get my brothers and bring them to me that they would see me resurrected. They'd see me in all my victory. Now, the reason why I love that is because think about these men. 
These are men that have denied Christ and abandoned Christ and forsook Christ. And Jesus doesn't say, get those lousy, no good, worthless men. Tell them to come here. I told them I was going to raise from the grave like a hundred times. And then he didn't believe it. So if you, Mary, would please go get those idiots and tell them I said that and bring them in here. That'd be great. That's not what we find. Jesus says, go, go get my brothers. I'm not ashamed of them. No, go get my brothers. Let them come and let them see me. And this is the grace of Jesus. And so the application is, as we look at this great grace to receive us in all of our sin and shame, thank him for his grace to forgive us of those things, to cleanse us of those things, all that we would worship Jesus for his great grace. Lastly, the fourth picture we see of Christ in this passage is that he is priest. He's priest. He's a the priest that can help us. He's the great high priest, verse 17 tells us. And the description of this priest is twofold in verse 17. He is merciful and he is faithful. He's the faithful high priest. What does that mean? It means that he was faithful to keep every single law in every single way. He fulfilled the law of righteousness and he kept everything from the old co- covenant through mind and through action. He was faithful to live out every single one, every single time. He never messed up. He was faithful to keep every jot and tittle of the law. That's what Jesus did. Now, why this matters so much is because if you want to research and take time to go look at the Old Testament, many of the priests failed in many horrible ways. And you get to 1 Samuel chapter 2. This is homework for you if you want to go read it. You get to 1 Samuel chapter 2. And the priests are there serving, and these priests are abusing God's people for selfish, sinful actions. And God says, I'm going to bring judgment down on them. And then he makes this promise in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 35. God says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. Faithful priest. The exact words that Hebrews chapter 2 is using. Who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, And I will build a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Promise given, promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the faithful priest where all others faltered, he fulfilled. But he's not just faithful, he's the merciful high priest. He's merciful in two ways. You see in verse 17 and 18, he's merciful because he is our propitiation. He's our propitiation. What does that mean? Propitiation means a payment that satisfies. There was a debt that needed to be paid, and Jesus satisfied that payment. And I don't have time to unpack all of this, but the beauty is, if you go back to Leviticus 16... When there was a, a, a time, the, the day of atonement, the priest would come out and he would sacrifice a pure and spotless lamb on the Ark of the Covenant. Underneath the Ark was God's law, which was broken by man. And above that was a place called the mercy seat. And that lamb's blood would be shed on the mercy seat that God's people would know it's by his mercy that we are forgiven because we have broken that law. This is what propitiation is. This is what Jesus called us to do. 
to follow him, to believe in him, to trust that he is the propitiation for our sin in our place. And some of us might think, like, why does there have to be a payment for my sin? And it's because God is holy. God is just. For God just to overlook sin and to overlook injustices, to say, hey, just come over here, let's just hug it out, we'll be good, would make him an unjust God. But he is a righteous God and a holy God. He is the perfect and faithful priest. And so it's through Jesus, God can be both the just and the justifier, as Jesus is the propitiation for us, our substitute in our place. This is why John the Baptist, when he first sees Jesus kind of coming down the, the road, he says, behold, everybody look, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Oh, he is merciful because he is our propitiation if we believe and trust in him. He's also merciful, verse 18, because he can help us when we are tempted. He helps us when we're tempted. Jesus, as he came to earth, he felt every temptation that we have felt, and he endured it. So when we pray, when we struggle, he gets it. And I wrote down several of these this week. Jesus knows the, the lure of temptation to choose our way over the will of God. As he, the night before he goes to the cross, prays to God the Father, if there's any other way, if there's a plan B, please get me out of this. He felt the temptation to do his will as opposed to God the Father's. But Jesus said, not my will, but your will. He knows the temptation to doubt God in the midst of the loss of a loved one. Jesus lost a good friend, Lazarus, and he weeps and cries because of it. And Jesus at that point could have doubted God, but he didn't. He trusted in God and said this is all for the glory of God. Jesus knows the temptation to slander somebody because you've been betrayed or rejected. Just see the disciples. He knows the temptation to disbelieve in God's goodness in the midst of singleness. The Gospels record Jesus, who would have been in his 30s, going to several different wedding feasts. Most of his friends would have been married and had kids by the age of 30. And Jesus knows that there would have been a temptation. God, are you really good in this? Is this really what you, you think? I mean, for some of you that have been single for a long time, and this is something you desire, and you need to realize when you are praying, you are praying to a 33-year-old single adult. This is who Jesus was. He knows that, and yet he trusted in God's goodness. But at the same time, Jesus knows the temptation of bitterness, choosing bitterness instead of forgiveness for being rejected by a marriage partner. You see, the church is called the bride of Christ. And Jesus, at one point, was looking over the city of Jerusalem, and he said, how long have I wanted to bring you back to me like a, like a mother hen with her chicks, and you have rejected me? And you've said no. He knows what that feels like. And so when we pray to him, Jesus is like, I get it. That's why he's a merciful priest. That's why he's a faithful high priest, because we can go to him and know we're not going to be shamed. We're going to be welcomed in as we come to him, because he is our propitiation. Our forgiveness of sins as he took our debt in our place. And so church family, that's what we celebrate as we close now, is the Lord's Supper. 